If you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 8, as we continue our journey through the Old Testament together, Lord willing, I'd like to finish up the book of Esther tonight, and then we'll move into the book of Job next week. Let's pray, why don't we, as we open the scriptures. Father, thank you for this time to be together in the Word of God, and we just ask, Lord, you'd help us to continue now in our worship of you as we've sang and prayed and, Lord, been fellowshipping together. We pray that this would continue to be just as much an act of our worship towards you now as we submit our heart and our soul, mind, and spirit to to just the authority of your voice, Uh, Lord, your powerful voice. We pray that each of us would be able to receive our portion through the living and active word of God and that by your spirit, Lord, uh, we would hear your voice. Uh, so we just pray that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but that demonstration of your spirit and power uh, that so wonderfully speaks to our hearts. So bless your word tonight, Lord, as we study it together. And we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You know, throughout the historical events of the book of Esther, we've been kind of seeing God working behind the scenes. And it's a unique book, we said at the outset of it, in that though we don't directly see God's name mentioned in the book, uh, there are not direct references to the law of the Lord, there are not references to sacrifices, nothing mentioned about the priesthood, the name of the Lord, but yet nonetheless it is so evident that God's hand is at work. And we see all throughout this story, if we've been tracking with it, that God is allowing and directing and causing circumstances to bring about ultimately what would be best for his people. And though those circumstances were difficult, a lot of the circumstances that have been transpiring were things that God's people would have preferred they were not going through, that in some ways were outside of their control and unpleasant for them to experience, nonetheless, God's hand was overruling and working in an invisible way behind the scenes. And as I said, though God's not directly mentioned, it is evident uh, that what is happening, God is directly involved in that he's intimately involved in every aspect of what was happening, even using everyday events of people to fulfill his purpose. And because God always sees what's coming ahead and is fully aware of what tomorrow holds or next week or next month or however long he may tarry until he wraps all this here on earth up and brings us into his presence when the Lord returns ultimately, because God sees what's down the road, he plans and works things to unfold purposely to work in accordance with his ultimate will and his perfect design. And that's what we often call, as we said early in the study in Esther, God's providence. And if there is one predominant theme in the book of Esther, when you read it, it is the providence of God. Again, that word providence, it's a compound word, proviso. The idea is pro to before or first to see uh, is the last part of it, viso. So the idea is God sees in advance, and because God sees ahead, he provides whatever needs to happen to bring about what is best in accordance with what's coming down the road. It's a wonderful attribute of our Father to know that though we don't even have any idea what's going to happen in the next hour or the next day, that God sees all the way through because he stands outside of time and eternity, and he actually is caring for his people by using his providence. And knowing what's going to happen, he causes things to take place now and tomorrow, the next day, to coordinate and bring about what would be best for not only his will, but even what would be best for us as his children because he loves us. And we have seen God's providence all throughout the book of Esther, particularly that God knew that there was going to be this very diabolical attempt to annihilate the Jewish people to seek to destroy God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, which ultimately was something that the devil has been trying to do from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, trying to bring destruction, and particularly focusing his efforts to destroy God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And of course, the reason the devil is so interested in that and has inspired so many throughout human history, not just Haman, who we see in this book, Uh, The devil's behind that because, of course, everything to do with Israel is really sort of everything that hinges upon God's eternal plans, beginning with the fact that the Messiah came from the Jews. And so up until this point, whether it was Pharaoh trying to destroy the nation or Haman here with a plot to try and destroy the Jewish people, uh, understand the devil is trying to destroy the messianic line. 
and to try and thwart the purposes and the plans of God, though he may inspire men to be behind that. So God knew this was going to happen, that this evil man, Haman, who was in a very high-ranking power in government, was going to ultimately hate all of the Jews because of a bad experience he was having with just one Jew. Uh, And because of his bad experience with one person, he began hating an entire ethnic group. He had bad attitude toward an entire race of people just because of one bad experience with Mordecai. And he had this hatred for the Jews. And remember, he convinced the king of Persia to basically set a day and a time in which all of the Jews in the kingdom of Persia would be annihilated and put to death. And he got this edict to be passed through his schemes. Well, God, knowing that was going to happen prior to that ever coming to pass, God began working on the front side. And before those days ever came to pass where Haman got this scheme orchestrated to annihilate the Jews, God allowed for events to unfold where Queen Vashti, unfortunately, was deposed and put aside by her husband. And King Ahasuerus, remember, then went through a selection process to find himself a new wife and a new queen at the advisement of his counselors around him. And ultimately, we know that Esther, this young Jewish gal, finds herself kind of in this Persian beauty contest. And she ultimately ends up being the one who's favored and selected to be the next queen of Persia. Uh, Now, when she was brought into that position, her elder cousin Mordecai, who had raised her from the days when her parents had died and kind of took her in and became a father figure to her and raised her, and Mordecai had told her not to disclose the fact that she was a Jew at that time when she was taken in and became the queen uh, of Persia at that time. Again, God coordinating all these things, but of course, ultimately, when evil Haman then convinces through his scheme the king to destroy the Jewish people, it's at that point Mordecai saw what God was doing, kind of putting the pieces together. And that's, of course, where in chapter 4, remember that Mordecai exhorted strongly Esther, saying, look, if you don't do anything, God will find a way to bring deliverance through some other means because he's a covenant-keeping God, and he's not going to let his promises to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob fail for that matter. But he said, but what if perhaps God has brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this? In other words, that everything that has happened through your life, the hardships, your parents dying, me raising you, all these kind of things. What if all those things he's saying and then ultimately, you know, forcibly finding yourself now to have to be the queen of Persia and all these events unfolding? What if all of those things God in his foresight was allowing to happen and coordinating and pulling strings so that you would be at the right place at the right time to do one of the most right things you ever could to spare an entire nation of people, and ultimately to fulfill the purposes of God by preserving the messianic line. And she, of course, was a little bit timid when she heard that at first. She said, you don't realize what you're asking. If I go into the king's presence without being summoned, it's not just that he's my husband. He's the king first and foremost. And if I brazenly go into his presence without the golden scepter of favor being extended to me, uh, the king's law is I can be put to death for that. Uh, Now, Ultimately, she recognized that this was the right thing to do, and so she said, look, you fast and pray for three days, I will as well, and and if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do what's right, and if there's a cost attached to it, I'm willing to bear the cost, but she chose to trust the Lord. She went in, she spoke to her husband, ultimately she revealed this scheme and plot that Haman, the second in command, had come up with to destroy all the Jewish people and revealed now her own Jewishness at the right time. At that point, then, her husband was filled with wrath. Who in the world would seek to put to death my queen, my wife, and all of her people? And it's at that point, of course, the cover is pulled back on Haman, and the king is filled with wrath, another event or two unfold, and ultimately it leads to the king actually putting Haman to death. And Haman actually gets hung on the own gallows that he was hoping to be able to put to death Mordecai on. Now, with that backdrop being said... Haman, this evil enemy, has been eliminated, so he's been taken out of the picture, the one who's kind of prompting the destruction of the Jews, but there's still a major problem because a decree was issued by the king of Persia to assassinate all the Jews on a set day and time. 
And when a decree of Persia was made, you could not alter that decree. Not even the king could. They believed that the authority of the king was so strong in its representation that once a decree was made, you couldn't even change the decree. Even the king himself could not do that. So you have a very big problem still, though Haman has now been put to death. This decree to still assassinate the Jews still stands. But again, the good news is, is that we recognize that there's no problem which God is not able to come up with a solution for. And this book testifies to that, and the remainder of the book shows us that thing. So with that backdrop, look with me in chapter 8, verse 1. It tells us in the prior verse that Haman had just been hanged on the gallows. He prepared for Mordecai, the king's wrath. Then it says subsided. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, And on that day then, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Might better be stated actually the enemy of God. Uh, It says the enemy of the Jews, but anyone who's an enemy of the Jews scripturally ultimately becomes an enemy of God because God says all the way back in the book of Genesis through Abraham as he was speaking to him, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And anyone who makes themselves an enemy of the Jewish people ultimately is making themselves an enemy of God, which is a much, much bigger problem. And this is what Haman was. He was an enemy to the Jews, but it's interesting to see, again, how God's always turning the tables on behalf of what's being done that's evil and bringing about what's best for those who love him and who are righteous. And here, notice, it says that once Haman is put to death, the king then gives the house of Haman to Queen Esther. And remember, his house had to be a pretty nice house because, remember, he was willing to finance an incredible amount of money to pay for the assassination of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. So this was a very wealthy man. So she inherits quite an incredible house. And it tells us as well, verse 1, that then Mordecai came before the king, for Esther now told how he was related to her. So now she begins to reveal, remember this man Mordecai, king, she says, actually, this is the second time that he saved you once earlier back in chapter 2 when he uncovered a plot of two servants that wanted to assassinate him and Mordecai tipped them off and they were able to avoid the king being put to death. And then here again, Mordecai steps forward, encourages Esther to go in and to intercede. So now she reveals this man, Mordecai, who you've rewarded already, he's actually the man who raised me. He's actually the father figure in my life. And and the king now becomes aware of this. The right time has come to pass to disclose this. And again, there's, there's always a time and a a place for certain things to happen. And we see things happening on God's timing. The Bible says there's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. No pun intended, right? (laughs) And this was the time to finally disclose this man, Mordecai, who's caused such agita throughout the king. He's actually the man who raised me. He's actually my father, if you would, she says to him. So look what happens, verse 2. Again, the king with great love and favor towards his wife, Esther. It says, so the king then took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, which is interesting. Haman had that ring prior as kind of the prime minister, this very powerful and important ring, the signet ring, which represented the authority of the king. He takes it off of Haman's hand, probably right before he hangs him. And now it says he gives that very authority in the signet ring to Mordecai, and Esther then appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Mordecai now finds himself, after having for many years in his life, kind of humbly served in somewhat obscurity. I mean, he just was a good man who kind of served in obscurity. He kind of lived under the radar you know, and, and, and wasn't in a prominent position. He wasn't in the who's who of the Persian Empire. Nobody really knew who Mordecai was, but God knew who he was because he operated with integrity and in the sphere of opportunity and responsibility he had. He did what was right among his household. He helped Esther to have good and godly guidance in how she conducted her affairs. And God had watched as he served faithfully in obscurity. And now God's honoring him. Now God's promoting him. And now the Lord lifts him up. And now he becomes kind of like how Joseph was with Pharaoh, second in command to the king. He finds himself in a matter of a day getting a tremendous amount of responsibility transferred to his life. 
He goes from kind of being just someone in a very small sphere to all of a sudden now he's somewhat the prime minister of Persia. And he has the signet ring of the king. Now, understand, the signet ring is kind of like equivalent, you might say, to having the signature of the king. It's almost a good way to think about that. The signet ring is kind of like having the signature of the king because the signet ring was the sign of the king's authority. As they would maybe seal up a document for a decree or there would be a purchase and there would be a wax seal, the signet ring was pressed into that and that was sort of the signature of the king's representation and authority. So whoever had that ring indicated that you had the authority of the throne behind your activities the authority of the throne behind your decisions and the things that you decided as you conducted the king's business. And I think it's a good reminder to us. I mean, he had the signet ring. We have something much better. We have the authority, the Bible tells us, of the king of kings, Jesus Christ, as we represent him and we have his authority. In fact, remember in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says as he's sending out the disciples in the great commission to go and serve the Lord, he said, all authority from heaven and earth has been given unto me. And then you go therefore into all the nations and make disciples teaching them and to observe the things that I've taught you. And I'll be with you always. The idea of I'll be with you is I'll be with you and you'll be doing it in my authority because with the authority of the throne of God, I'll be with you. And how wonderful that even as here Mordecai has the authority and the signature, if you would, of the throne of the king of Persia, which was powerful. How much more powerful is the authority that's behind us as we serve the Lord's purposes and know that as we seek to conduct his business, that there is a divine authority behind us and what we're doing when we're fulfilling the purposes of the throne of God and his kingdom. So verse 3 says, Esther then spoke again to the king because she realizes there's still a problem to address. She fell down at his feet and implored him with tears. The idea is in humility to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. So she now goes in and Esther here begins interceding once again because she realizes there's a big problem. This scheme and decree to annihilate the Jewish people, it still stands. So now she goes into her husband. She humbles herself before the king and it says, notice, falling at his feet with tears, great emotion. She says, I need you to counteract, she says, the scheme which was devised against the Jews. Can you change it? She's going to say, can you revoke this? Now, take notice here. This becomes a beautiful picture of intercessory prayer before the king, before the throne, something that we should be doing. She's interceding before the greatest throne on earth in that day. Again, we're interceding before a much greater throne a much higher throne with much more power and authority. And notice, in this picture of intercession here before the king, one thing we take note of is that she was incredibly humble in the process. By the same token, she's incredibly passionate in her pleading. She's on her knees. She's also got tears coming down her eyes, so she's pleading in passion. She's not just kind of casual and apathetic. She's passionately pleading with the king in this situation even as we should passionately plea, even though we should come before God with humility. Uh, And also we can see she submitted, however, to whatever the king decides, because it tells us here in verse four going on, the king held out the golden scepter toward her. So Esther arose and stood before the king. So again, the golden scepter indicates favor. You have my acceptance. You may approach me. And we've talked about how the blood of Christ allows the golden scepter of the favor of God to allow us to come boldly to the throne of grace. That's why the scepter of, uh, of, of access is extended to us. We can't brazenly go into God's presence on our own. We talked about that in our last study together. So again, here's this gracious extension, which means you may approach me. And she says, verse five, if it pleases the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right to the king, And I am pleasing in his eyes. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who were in the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of 
my countrymen. So notice two other things in regards to her intercession here. It's very evident from verse 5 that though she's very serious and passionate about what her plea is, that she wants the king to use his power and his authority, it says verse 5, to revoke the letters of the scheme that has been devised. And she says, I'm pleading with you, please use your authority to do this. You have the power. If anyone has the power, you can bring this to pass. But notice as well in verse 5, she keeps saying, if it pleases the king and if it seems right to the king, then do this. And this shows you a wise balance. She's saying, I know you have the power to do this and I'm pleading with you to do this. But she says, if this is not in accordance with your will, then don't do it. Because you're the king, and I'm just a servant in your kingdom. And to me, this is a great representation of the balance of how we should pray and we should intercede. We should ask for the stars and then accept whatever God allows. And and go before the Lord, and he's not a cosmic genie. We can't bully God and bribe God and twist God's arm and just say the name of Jesus in a certain way. And at a certain point, go, oh, you said it that way. I, I have to now. It doesn't work that way with God. We plead with God. We humbly implore him to act in his power. But then also at the same time, we say, but Lord, your will be done. If it pleases you, do this. You have the power to do this. And if it's in accordance with your will, but God, I don't ultimately know your will all the time. And sometimes it may look very clearly to us and almost seems like that the older we get in the Lord, the more we can almost have a tendency to think that we don't need to ask, but Lord, your will be done. Because we kind of think, well, I know a lot of scripture. I'm pretty spiritually mature. So when I plead for something, I know I'm on track. And the reality being is sometimes we may be completely off track because we're not God. And his ways are higher than our ways. And sometimes he's doing things that we don't even recognize. And I've seen that more than once where it seems so this has got to be the Lord's will. And and ultimately, he may have something completely different. So we should always have that humility to say, Lord, we submit to whatever you decide. If it pleases you, do this. And notice as well in verse 6, she's very motivated by love for people. She says, I can't endure to see this destruction that's going to come upon my people. And when we intercede and we pray, May a great part of that be because we're motivated by love for people, whether we're motivated for the love of lost souls or motivated for the destruction we see happening in someone's life or maybe the path they're headed on where the devil is going to ravage their life, that it would be our love for people that would motivate us to plead with the Lord and to ask him to work and to exercise his power. So she she asks, but notice again, verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman. The, it says, And they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. Verse 8, You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name. And then seal it with the signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring. Notice, as we said earlier, no one can revoke. So here he says to them, look, in essence, he's saying, I can't revoke an existing decree. That's law in Persia. And always nice to have a king who actually follows the laws of the land or any government official for that matter. And he says, it's the law. I can't do that. But he says, what I am giving to you in my authority is I'm giving you my signet ring and I'm telling you, write another decree. Use wisdom. Pray. Think about if there's another way that you can write a decree that somehow this could be resolved. And he doesn't even tell them what to do. He lets them kind of figure out, but he gives them complete liberty. You write a, a new decree that somehow will help counteract the old decree. In a sense, that's what he's giving them the opportunity to do here. He says, you can do this and do as you please in the king's name. And again, that's what we do. We come in the king's name, in the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean it's a, 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 a magic charm. The idea is it's in accordance with his will, with his authority. When you come in the name of King Arthur and make a proclamation, you're saying, I represent this throne. I don't represent myself. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying in the name of Jesus because we want things to come into alignment with the authority in the throne of Jesus. But there is great authority when we pray that way. And so here, they're given this opportunity to write a new decree now and to seal it And no one would be able to revoke that decree either. So verse 9 says, So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, 
on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai had commanded. So it seems he came up with the decree. Uh, verse uh, going on, it says, All that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps and the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. So the whole expanse of the kingdom got this new decree. To every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. So this decree goes out. It's universal in the sense that everyone can understand it. No one would not be able to be aware of what the decree is. They wanted everyone to be able to understand what this decree was because it gave a tremendous opportunity to those who are willing to take advantage of it. Even as God sends forth the gospel and a decree of the good news of Christ, he, he wants it to go forth in every language. The Bible says in heaven they're going to be around the throne of God, every tribe, kingdom, tongue, nation. And God wants all to be able to hear of the opportunity that comes from his throne. So they now go out, and they're going to bring this decree. And verse 10 tells us that he wrote in the name the king Ahasuerus then sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent by letters, by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. So they were to get out this message quickly. It was an important message, no delay. The king even said, look, use horses, he says, from my stables, the fastest steeds that we have, and get this message out there. This is what the people need to hear and make sure they get the news quickly. Verse 11 tells us what it is now. By these letters, the king, notice, permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and to protect their lives. The idea is he granted them the permission from the throne to exercise self-defense. To those who sought to destroy them or to assassinate them, they now have authority from the throne as well. If you are attacked or anyone tries to assassinate or put to death you, your wife, or your children, you have the right of self-defense. And from the very throne and the government rulership, you have that right to self-defense, to protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province, notice, of all that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. Now, take note of that. They also had the right to plunder the possessions of those who attack them when they exercise self-defense. And that was typically uh, a very common thing in ancient culture. If you conquered a people or you won a battle, you were entitled to plunder their possessions. And so they were given the same privilege. You can use self-defense, and anyone who tries to harm you or assault you, you can use self-defense, and you can plunder their possessions. But take note as we go through what they do in response to this very thing in light of the plundering of the possessions. It says, verse 12, On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adar, and a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people, so that the Jews would be ready on that day, it says, to avenge themselves on their enemies." And the couriers who rode on royal horses went out, and they hastened and pressed on by the king's command. I love the language there of the Holy Spirit. They pressed on by the king's command. And if you have the king's command to do something, you've got to learn how to press on. You've got to learn how to press on, because sometimes the, the king gives you a command to do something, and then there are obstacles and challenges, and the devil doesn't you know, give us a standing ovation when we try and follow and carry out the king's command. The, you know, the Bible says that you know, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Uh, and when the king has given us a command to do something, there is going to be resistance and opposition. And we have to be willing to press on. Even these couriers had to press on through terrain and rough territory because this was an important message. We need to get the word out there, two things. Anyone who's thinking about attacking the Jewish people know that they have freedom to exercise self-defense and to kill you in self-defense, and they will not be in trouble for it because it's self-defense, according to the king. As well as the Jewish people needed to know this because this was the message of their deliverance. The message of their opportunity to be able to save and preserve their lives when a death sentence had been pronounced against them. So verse 15 says, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and 
garment of fine linen and purple. He's quite decked out now with all the royal garments of his new position from the city of Shushan. And he rejoiced and was glad. And the Jews also had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness and a feast and a holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. So not only were the Jews celebrating, but people were actually becoming proselytes or becoming of the circumcised people to worship Jehovah God because they realized somehow the favor of God was turning evident in an outward way upon the Jewish people, and it was causing people to be responsive, to want to worship their same God. So we see in verses 15 through 17 that as the news of this new decree, this new law, if you would, to experience deliverance and salvation went out and was circulated. As the people heard this from Mordecai to all the Jews, it says there that they had gladness and there was feasting and joy and rejoicing. Why? Because they just got news. God's brought about deliverance for us. There's an opportunity to be saved. It may not have been the one we wanted, but we now have an opportunity for salvation when the sentence of death had prior to that been upon our lives, that they had no control over stopping. Now, to me, as I look at this, it becomes a very interesting picture because notice the first decree that was established was a law from the throne that could not be altered or changed. And that first decree that was established, which was a law that could not be altered or changed, was basically a law that declared a death sentence over all the Jewish people. But then we see the king wisely brings to pass the opportunity for what? A new decree, a new law to be issued, if you would, to counteract the effect of the first law, which was condemnation and death. And the new law counteracts the first law, and it decrees that that first law, in a sense, uh, you know, that was in existence, it's not set aside, but it's counteracted because the new law provides a way now of deliverance out of the consequences of the old law, which was death. Now, when I look at this, I think what a beautiful picture the Holy Spirit puts right here in the Bible of exactly what God has done for all of us spiritually. Because God's law, the law of Moses, cannot be altered or changed. The law of Moses, God's law, which is good and holy, nothing wrong with the law. The problem is wrong with us. But God's first law, the law of Moses, says that the soul that sins, what, shall surely die. And so, therefore, all of us as sinners are under the condemnation of death. And it's decreed. And God can't alter or change his law. He can't do that. That has to stand, yet God in his divine wisdom and love established a new decree through a new covenant, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, in a sense, to counteract the problematic situation of the law of sin and death that reigned over our lives. And through Jesus Christ, God has made a way to resolve the issue, to bring about an opportunity to do what? Be spared, to be saved, to be able to be delivered. Jesus said, remember, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to set aside the law. It's God's law. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I just came to fulfill the law, to satisfy the demands of the law so that the death sentence would not have to come to pass upon humanity. Romans 3 speaks about this in great depth of how God found a way to be just and the justifier of those who believe. I love that. God found a way to be just. He's still holy. He's still just. Sin has to be punished. Death has to be the sentence for sin. But Jesus died and bore death for our sin. So God remained just in letting Jesus die and be punished for our sin. And then he also, at the same time, simultaneously became the justifier, the one who could make us righteous simply through our belief in the finished work of Christ. To realize, according to the law, I deserve to die because I'm a sinner. But according to the blood of Christ and the satisfactory work of his redemption and resurrection, there's a new opportunity and that supersedes and therefore I can be spared. I can be delivered. You know, in the book of Romans, Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8. Listen to what he says. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin 
and death. You see the reference to the two laws. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from that old law of sin and death. What a beautiful picture even here in the Old Testament to give us reflections of exactly the things that God has done for us to a much greater degree from his throne. Chapter 9 then tells us, now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, this is the, the time now when they were to be put to death, the time came for the king's demand and his decree to be executed. And on that day, it says, the enemies of the Jews had, who had hoped to overpower them, it says the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. So those who thought they would overpower the Jews Again, God comes to the aid of his people, as he so often does. And even when you know, evil is trying to overcome his people and destroy his people and unfair treatment and all these kind of things that happen to us as God's people, even as it was happening to the Jews. But it says the opposite occurred. And you know, that's exactly what God's in the business of doing. God is in the business of causing the opposite to occur if somehow it's going to disrupt what his plans are or what's best for his purposes or for his people. The devil thought that he was destroying and overruling Christ and putting Christ to death. It says in Colossians that Christ triumphed in the cross over the devil and disarmed him of all of his powers. God allowed the opposite to occur. And many times in our life, people may try and do you wrong or harm you or come against you or mistreat you. But God has an amazing way of making things just turn around and the opposite occurs, right? And instead of you being destroyed, God does something, you end up being blessed on the backside of it. And it would have been a horrible thing. And God takes that and he says, I'm just going to make the opposite occur. I'm going to make you more blessed on the other side. And God just has ways of allowing this to come to pass. So it says, when they sought to overpower them, the opposite occurred. The Jews overpowered them, all those who hated them, because, again, God's favor and help was with them to protect them, to give them victory and military endeavors at this point now. And the Jews, it says, verse 2, gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And that wasn't for prayer. It was for other things. And no one could withstand them because the fear of them fell upon all the people. Again, was it their great military strength? Absolutely not. It was the favor of God upon their life and the fact that God was their defender. And, you know, all throughout the history of the Jews, so many times against odds, God does supernatural things to allow them to be successful that are, you know, marvels of history. And here was one of those occasions where though they were a very limited number of people and they had enemies who hated them, it says no one could withstand them because the fear of God fell upon the people because of the Jews. And all the officials of the provinces, verse 3, the satraps and governors and all those doing the king's work. Again, love that phrase. They're doing the king's work. That's what we should be doing. And look what it was when they were doing the king's work. It says, doing the king's work, they helped the Jews. It's a good reminder. Doing the king's work, they helped the Jews. Whether it's helping the Jewish people as God's chosen people, the nation of Israel standing with them, or just finding ways to help God's people generally. Uh, that's doing the king's work. Because it says the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. And Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame now spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. So God was causing his favor. Again, I mean, what a transition from kind of an obscure, humble situation. All of a sudden now, Mordecai is prime minister. His influence, his power is being used in full force. And all that season of kind of quiet obscurity that was kind of being kept in reserve. God's now using Mordecai tremendously. His influence is affecting everyone throughout all the provinces, encouraging the people. And thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with a stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction and all, and did what pleased with those who hated them. And at Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. So as they're attacked, they do what they are given right to do. They exercise self-defense to protect themselves. And it says they had to put to death about 500 people at this time. And again, how did they do it? Verse 5, it says they defeated their enemies with the stroke of the sword. 
And you know what, folks? In the same way spiritually, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 and Ephesians 6 that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's the sword God's given us to defend ourselves against our enemies. And we have enemies in our life too, whether those enemies are the weaknesses of our own flesh or things that come against us. The way that we defeat our enemies and we conquer in spiritual warfare is not striving, not arguing, not fighting, not resisting, not picketing, not protesting. It's using the word of God in a correct way in our lives to defeat our enemies. We stand upon the word of God. We live by the word of God. We conduct ourselves according to the word of God. We speak the truths of the word of God. We pray the promises of the word of God, asking a king who's on a throne to do things for us that sometimes we just shouldn't be doing in our human efforts to try and fight and resist and solve things in the flesh. The Bible tells us that we experience conflict in the flesh, but Paul says that that though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. He says the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal. They're, they're mighty in God. But sometimes as Christians, you know, we, we can almost be the most contentious people. I mean, look, I think it's good to stand up for righteousness. I think we should stand up for righteousness. But sometimes in our effort to do that, we can almost get a little self-righteous. And we think somehow that we have all the answers and, and we can become some of the most judgmental, critical, forceful, pushy people. And I don't always know if that's the heart of the Lord sometimes. I'd encourage you, you know, prayerfully think through what, what weapons are you using to fight your battles? How are you conquering your enemies? Let the word of God, the spiritual weapons of warfare be the way that we conquer because then we know God's in the battle and God's won the battle in the way that we went about it. Well, verse 7 through 9 give to us the names of the ten sons of Haman, which I'm not going to pronounce, the enemy of the Jews that they put to death, but they did not lay a hand, notice, on the plunder. They could have took the plunder But they opted not to. Why? Because they didn't care about the plunder. This was just self-defense. They weren't greedy for gain. They They just wanted the entitlement of what was right in their life. So they don't even take the plunder. They refrain. Something they could have taken, but they opted to just keep their hands off it. On that day, a number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? He's not sure. Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you, or what is your further request? It shall be done. So he says, Esther, I I see that this is a right thing. Is there anything else you would request of me at this time? He says, any further request that she has favor with the throne at this point? So Esther said, well, if it pleases the king, again, notice that submissive, I'm asking, but if it pleases the king, that's her preface. I don't want it if it doesn't please you, she said. If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. That is to continue to exercise self-defense if anyone should attack them or threaten their families. And let Haman's ten sons, who are now dead at this point, be hanged on the gallows. The idea is probably is a public representation of what happens when you do such things. So the king commanded this to be done, and the decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar, killed another 300 men at Shushan, but they again, notice, did not lay hand on the plunder. And the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives. That's all this was about, protection of their own lives, self-defense. Had the rest of their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but again, they did not lay a hand on on the plunder. And this was the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So they're now commemorating a celebration, the, the celebration of Purim, which they celebrate to this day. We'll see. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th, back to back. And on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and sending presents to one another, actually exchanging gifts and just celebrating, celebrating the deliverance of God, rejoicing in what the Lord had done. 
So verse 20 says, Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters now to all the Jews near and far in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly. So this is now a yearly celebration for the Jewish people. The 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them a feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written them because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, again, that's the term for lot, like casting the dice, and Purim is the, the plural of that, and that's why this feast ultimately is celebrated as the Feast of Purim. That's where it gets that name from because of what events happened, to consume and destroy them. Verse 25, but when Esther had come before the king and commanded by letter that this wicked plot of Haman, who he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pure. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, and what they had seen concerning this matter and what happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail, notice, they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. So here we get really a what we call a non-Levitical feast. Uh, or a, a, a feast that's not according to the law of Moses, Passover, Pentecost. These were prescribed feasts that God, but, but this is more of a traditional celebration, which the Jews to this day still celebrate. And kids dress up in costumes, and there's a reading of the story and dramatic you know, experience with the whole thing. But it is their way of remembering and commemorating what God did for them. And recognizing, again, the faithfulness of God. And, and, and I like this. I think there's something very valuable about having certain things, even if they're healthy traditions, that put us in remembrance of the awesome things that God does. Because you know, a lot of times, you know, the Lord does incredible things. He takes us through a test, and then he does something incredible, and it becomes a testimony. And, and then we kind of just tend to let that fade into the background, and, and I think one of the wonderful things about the feast, as well as this traditional celebration, is they have a way of causing us to kind of stop and recollect and to remember and, and to be conscious and think about the goodness of God and how God moved in power and God, amazing, the things that you did. And as they read the story of Esther from beginning to end, you know, just like, wow. And, and they just recognize, God, your hand was at work behind the scenes and you caused that to happen and this to happen and, and just saw how God was invisibly working behind the scenes, bringing about a turn of events and doing things that were incredible by his great power, overruling the affairs of men. So verse 29 says, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with the authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai then sent letters to all the Jews, 127 provinces of the king of Ajawaris, the words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning the matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written down in the book. Chapter 10 is lengthy. Can you take it? All right. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land. So taxes are nothing new under the sun, folks. The island of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of his greatness, the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Again, I like that. Notice the king advanced him. You know, we live in an age of self-promotion. Everybody wants to advance their self. So much better when just the king advances you. 
The king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew, it says, was second to King Ahasuerus, prime minister, just like Joseph was to Pharaoh. And he was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to his countrymen. I like that. A prime minister, a government official seeking the good of his people. God give us more of those. God give us more Christians in political positions. Those who would exercise their role as a public servant and say, you know, I have righteous convictions and I actually want to exercise my authority to do what's good on behalf of the people, not what's maybe good to get some votes or I'm going to do what's good on behalf of the people. And this is what Mordecai did in his role as a government official. You know, this book, really wonderful in the sense that reminding us, despite what mankind is doing, ultimately, at the end of the day, despite what mankind does, the ultimate plans of God are always still unfolding. And we have to remember that. This is the Old Testament illustration of Romans 8.28, that we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Pandemics. Racial chaos in our society, mistreatment, murders. I mean, just we, our world is crazy right now. And it is sad and heartbreaking. And look, the reason is because we're a plague people. The, the problem is 2 Timothy chapter 3, that in the last days, perilous times will come. And then the description of the perilous times is conditions of men's hearts brutal and disobedient to parents and unthankful and unholy and, you know, despisers of good. The problem with the world, folks, it's right here. I'm the first contributor. It's, it's the condition of our hearts. But thank goodness that no matter what men are doing, whether it's little insignificant you and I or governmental rulers or people doing things or the, whoever, God will overrule. And it's important to know that because that's what allows us to rest instead of always resisting and striving and fighting and pushing and just God's going to overrule. I just approach the throne of my king. If it pleases you, Lord, would you use your authority to work in this way? The will of the Lord be done. And we just let God work as he always does. You guys are troopers. Let's stand together.